Dose of Leadership Podcast, Episode 26. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership Podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. My name is Richard Ryerson. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. This show is brought to you by Audible.com. If you're like me, you're having trouble catching up with all your reading, well, Audible.com is the solution. With over 100,000 titles to choose from, you can catch up on all your reading while you're driving to work, exercising, taking a walk, download it to your inner MP3 player, your iPad, your iPhone, and uh, catch up on all your reading. It's been a great help for me for the show, catching up with uh, all the guests and all the great books that we've read and highlighted on this show. So go to doseofleadership.com slash audible, or you can find tons of links on my website, the banner ads. You can click on it, and you can download your free audiobook. And you got a free 30-day trial. You can poke around. No obligation, but uh, you can check out all the resources. It's a great, great website, great service. Again, thanks for all your support. My next interview coming up, i got to apologize first on the audio, talking to Dale Dye. I had the mixture of his voice a little bit high, so a little bit of static in the beginning, but it does get better, so apologize for any inconvenience for that. So I think you're really going to enjoy this interview with Dale Dye, and um, again, thanks for your support, and enjoy the interview. Well, on the phone with me, I'm pleased to have Dale Dye. He's an American author, actor, presenter, businessman, and a retired U.S. Marine Corps officer. He served combat during the Vietnam War. We call him a Mustang in the military parlance. He started out as a private and ended up as a captain and retired in 1984. And after 1984, he started Warriors, Inc. It's a California-based company that specializes in training actors for realistic military portrayals for movies. And that's when I first came across him in 1986 Platoon, where he played the very authentic and realistic Captain Harris. And uh, since then, he's played technical advisor to Saving Private Ryan, the HBO miniseries, Band of Brothers, uh, The Pacific. And Dale, I'm looking at your uh, your bio of movies and filmography and TV, and it's just so lengthy. It would take up the whole 35 minutes of our conversation. Dale Semperfy, welcome to the show. Semperfy, Rich. Thanks very much for having me. Well, you know, I came across and, and uh, I saw Platoon in 1986. I was a senior in high school. I really wasn't thinking about a military career, but I was always a big fan of military history. Watched a lot of war movies growing up as a kid, obviously. And Platoon really was a watershed moment for filmmaking. But I even remember thinking back, and I didn't, I didn't know what a real military officer was like, but your portrayal of Captain Harris really stood out. I remember there was that conversation between uh, Barnes and Elias when you were telling them to, that you needed them you know, after they had that big confrontation in, in the village. And then just that, I just remember that conversation, and it was so authentic and so real. So tell me a little bit about how you decided to uh, start Warriors, Inc. Well, um, let, me, let me just comment on, um, on that, that uh, reference you made to the, the scene with, uh, where Captain Harris talks to Barnes and Elias uh, when he hears that there may have been an illegal killing uh, in yeah. the village. That that scene wasn't really scripted, and um, it was just a, a sort of a mumbled conversation in the original version. 
And uh, I talked to Oliver Stone, and I said, you know, um, I've been in situations like that, and I know what I would say. And he said, well, hell, just say it. And so, and so I did. You know, I I, uh, I hammered it home just like uh, a company commander would. Yeah. And uh, he liked he liked that very much. And uh, that sort of confirmed for me uh, that I was on the right track. Um, that what really the problem was uh, in Hollywood was not so much. Uh, the fact that most writers and directors, with the exception of guys like Oliver Stone, had absolutely no association with the military. So they just uh, wrote stuff based on the last bad war movie they saw or their own prejudices or their own misconceptions about who us military people really are. Um, and and my original agenda when I began Warriors Incorporated was, was a very simple thing. I, I simply decided that I had had enough. The common denominator in practically every war movie I had seen, and I'd seen most of them, was that uh, they pissed me off. Yeah. They just didn't reflect who we really are and what we're really about. The fact that some of the most brilliant people in the world are wearing uh, the United States military uniform of one color or another. They weren't getting a fair shake, and I wanted to make damn sure somehow that they got that fair shake in the popular medium, uh, in the popular media, which included television, motion pictures, and and the most influential communications uh, that that uh, generations of Americans have. So that's that was really what was at the basis, even before Platoon, uh, for me starting Warriors Incorporated. Um, I. I didn't know anything about motion pictures, Rich. I was clueless. I didn't know how they were made. I just know that you gave them some money and bought your popcorn and sat down and, and saw them. Right. Uh, but what what happened is, I, you know, one of the things I learned in the Marine Corps was that uh, when you're ignorant, you can do a lot of things that people tell you you can't do. <laughs> and. And I was certainly ignorant about how motion pictures were made. So I decided I would just come out here to California, roll the dice, fix bayonets. Oh, that's awesome. And stick my, stick my nose in it and find out how the hell these things are made, what's what, and how come all these stupid mistakes were being made. Um, and so I did. I came out here and, you know, with nothing more than a $2,500 limit credit card. <laughs> and I said, I'm, I'm going to find a way to do this. And I did. Uh, I just volunteered to do everything. I haunted movie lots, um, and you know, fortunately, a lot of the uh, a lot of the security people on those movie lots were former military, so they didn't arrest me. They just escorted me off politely. Um, but I was able to get in enough to find out what the real scoop was on the business of being a, a military advisor to films. I mean, I'm sure. All of our guys in our audience and gals in our audience who've had time in uniform have had the same experience. I mean, they look at a movie, they look at yeah. a television show, and it just, it just reeks. It just sucks. Yeah. Um, it, it made once you became a, you know, once you learned how to fire a weapon, once you became in the military, then movies stopped becoming more fun because you you started pick, yeah, picking yeah. things apart. Yeah. Well, well, that's that's a common denominator. I mean, that's. I think everybody who's ever actually served um, has that experience. And I would see things on credits 
at the end of films that would say military advisor, military technical advisor, and would have some guy or gal uh, with their service and retired after it, uh, or maybe not even retired. Yeah. And I, I said, well, how can how can they be that stupid? Yeah. How, how can they let those things happen? One of the things I found out was that much of it is, is simply Hollywood hubris. Mm. It is that Nobody who ever wore a uniform can possibly have a creative bone in his body. Uh, and so what we'll do is we'll go hire somebody, probably the director's cousin who did six months in the California National Guard, and we'll have him tell us which side the ribbons go on, and then we'll put him in a chair and pay him $500 a week and let him go to sleep. Uh, and that's what was going on in many in many uh, instances. Yeah, i got to tell you a funny story. So, Go yeah, ahead. Sure, go. Well, I was just going to say when I was stationed, when I flew uh, uh, for the Marine Corps, I was stationed in El Toro before it was closed, you know, just south yeah. of Irvine. And so we would get uh, requests all the time for shows to come down and, and you know, video or record on our inside of a plane or something. And mm-hmm. J- and JAG at the time was, was always coming down and using our hangars, our backdrops, the inside of the airplanes, yeah. whatever. And their military advisor was a guy that wore camouflage pants, uh, a red shirt, sleeveless shirt, real muscular guy, blonde hair, ponytail. And that was the guy. And I'm like, really? What? And and we started talking to him. And we same thing. We noticed on the ribbons. That's what reminded me of this story. He was like, wow, you know, the ribbons are all jacked up. That's wrong. It's this and that. The uniform's wrong. And uh, it was just amazing. And I thought, how can that be? How can they get away with that, I guess. I mean, it didn't like it seemed like it would be that difficult to get it right, but... Well, there, there were a lot of... Uh, not only were there, were there a lot of unqualified people trying to do it, but there were a lot of charlatans. Um, and so, once I found this out, I decided, well, what's required here is a professional outfit that has the right people with the right experience and that understands how movies were made, or are made, and so during that time when I was conceiving all of this, I was discovering how movies are made. So it was a matter of fitting the business of how, how the actual product is produced and how a military guy who's a real military guy can get in there and using many leadership principles like tact and bearing and mm-hmm and uh, understanding and knowledge, um, courage, can, can get listened to and show them that the real stuff is so much better than anything, you know, that, that the, the inexperienced, naive writers can come up with. And that's essentially, uh, that was essentially my mission and essentially uh, how I approached it. Well, you hit it on the on the mark, and I mean, I, and I've thought about it. I've seen Platoon so many times, but I remember the first time that I saw it. And there were so many, you know, it was a packed movie house, and there were so many, you know, s- scenes that had never been in a, in a war movie before. But I, yeah. literally, that scene that you had with um, Elias and 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 Barnes, I don't know. It struck me, and, and now that you've shared with me the real reason that it was just kind of an off the cuff, that's why it worked so effectively. And I remember thinking, like, wow, that is what a military officer has to be. That is the – if I was a military officer, I'd want to be like that. And I didn't, ha- I didn't have aspirations to be a military officer at that time, but that scene struck a chord with me. And, of course, and then, yeah. the, and then the famous one where you have everybody expend all your ordnance on your paws. That's the, 
That's right. <laughs> I don't I don't know if you realize how often that's quoted at the basic school with uh, you know. Oh, I, oh yeah, indeed I do. <laughs> I hear from I hear from uh, officers um, all the time that uh, they've quoted that line oh, in a number gosh, of instances. Yeah. I mean, I can't tell me. You time. know, uh, the, the thing is, Rich. Um, at that time, I wasn't a trained actor. I didn't think I was. I'll say a little bit more about that in a minute. I didn't think I was a trained actor. So so I said, in order to do this. I'm just going to do what a company commander would do. Yeah. And I did. And, of course, you know, Oliver loved it, and the critics loved it, uh, because it was the real thing. It was simply me treating those two NCOs, uh, who were vital to me in the field at the time, uh, the way I would um, if, if I had really been their company commander in that situation. And a thing about, a thing about acting, let me, let me just uh, talk about that for a minute. I didn't think I was a trained actor, but I seemed to be getting encouraged by everybody who was watching me on the screen saying, you're good, you're good at this, where'd you learn this, where'd you go to school, where'd you go to acting school, and of course I didn't, and then I got to thinking about it. You know, 20-some years in the Marine Corps, I was an actor, I had to be, and I think every Marine has to be an actor. Um, because you do so many things and you're called on to do so many things that may be um, the complete opposite of your real nature. But you've got to do them, you've got to do them effectively, and you've got to do them convincingly. Yep. Look at a drill instructor. Yep. Uh, look, look at a troop handler. Um, all of those things are, in essence, acting. You know, it's, it's all the time I all the time I studied technique of military instruction, and I was an instructor in one field or another. Those were performances, and they had to be, or they weren't effective. You know, that's, so in essence, I discovered that uh, I really was an actor and quite well trained. Thank you. Yeah, you know, and that's it's funny you brought that up because that it's a perfect segue because I was exactly going to talk about that because. Similar experiences with me, and of course, I didn't. I'm not an actor, but when I've given well, pres- perhaps you are, yeah, and I've given presentations on on uh, leadership presentations, and we talk about confidence and everything else. And the one thing that the Marine Corps does very well, and I know I'm biased, but I've been in the Air National Guard, I've been in the Air Force after I got out of the Marine Corps, you know, in the reserves, and I, I know the differences between all the services. The Marine Corps does have the corner of the market. On, on what we call command presence. And they are so maniacal, and I don't use that word lightly, they're so maniacal about how you are perceived. And um, some may say, well, that's that's kind of phony baloney, it's not authentic. Well, and I would disagree because I think the Marine Corps does teach you that it is all about the presence. I mean, you got to have some substance backing it up. I mean, those officers that um, and NCOs that were all about the charisma and not no substance, you know, they were the ones that cracked under pressure, right? You saw it under the stress, but the ones that had solid character and a solid foundation. And I think it's important that that's what the Marine Corps really taught me is like how to be calm and confident in very stressful situations. Would you agree? Yeah. It's called bearing bearing. Yeah. And, and it's one of the the 14 leadership traits, which, uh, you know, I have used every day of my life, um, from in uniform and out of uniform. Let me, let me just tell you at one point, I was uh, learning uh, to be an instructor, and um, I knew the material, so it wasn't that. 
but I had some very senior NCOs. This is when I was uh, an NCO. And they said, look, we're going to put you in a thing called the Hall of Mirrors. And it was a long passageway in one of our uh, schoolhouse buildings that had uh, full-length mirrors. And as part of the exercise, as part of learning to be effective instructors, we stood in front of those mirrors and gave the classes to ourselves. Yeah. And we were critiqued on how we stood, how we used our hands, our body language, how we moved. And all of those things were, I didn't realize it at the time, but all of those things were extraordinary acting lessons. You're right, yeah. And it's painful to watch yourself, too. You don't realize what you do until you see yourself on videotape. That's a great technique, looking at the mirror. Yeah, yeah. You teach yourself. How did, uh, you know, 20 years in the Marine Corps, and you were there, um, like I said, and during, during Vietnam and then up and until the early 80s. My last combat assignment was Beirut, Beirut 82, wow. 83. Yeah. How many, and, and I just, I think back to my Marine Corps career, and I think about all the colorful characters that I came across, the good examples of leadership, the bad examples that, you know, sometimes you learned more from the bad. What hmm. was what was your experience like? Did you, were there, was there somebody, like say, for example, was your leadership style like Captain Harris, or was that someone you wanted to emulate to be? Talk to me a little about some of the colorful characters you came across and how the Marine Corps shaped you who you are today. Well, I was I was very much a Captain Harris type of character. Yeah. Um, I was a, a a kind of an expansive and colorful character. Uh, now, I don't know whether that was me just trying to call color uh, attention to myself, but I think I think what it what it really was uh, was that I was happy. I was delighted with what I was doing. And so I, I had a certain uh, joie de vivre. I had a certain um, happiness about what I did. You didn't find me whining or bitching much. Yeah. Uh, or if I did, I did it in a, in a colorful and sort of profane and humorous manner. Uh, and I had learned that from old senior NCOs and officers who, who I said, you know, these guys... Nothing ever seems to get them down. Nothing ever seems to bother them. And and what I found out was the essence of that is they were happy in what they were doing. Yeah. And they understood the importance of what they were doing. But they didn't let it become a cross that they bore. They enjoyed encountering and surmounting the problems that they experienced every day. They got a kick out of it. And I learned a very big lesson there. And that was quite simply um, bloom where you're planted. Yeah. Be happy with what you've got. Yeah, I like that. You know, I think you know. I think back to all the experiences that I mean, that was what was great about the Marine Corps was, you know, you, you <laughs> usually had you were tight on funds. You were always in austere, gross locations. Your equipment was always not the best. <laughs> but man, you had a good time. Rich, I, I note I noted that you use the past tense there, and I think there may be something to say about that. You know, coming up on around the late 80s and 90s, I began to see some of that joie de vivre disappear. Mm. And, you know, I spent an inordinate amount of time with the troops uh, of all services uh, simply because I'm high profile and they, they like to have me around. Um, but I noticed, I guess it was 
the advent of the PC Nazis, yeah. to tell you the truth. Yeah, I know. I agree. And, and the next thing you know, everybody was afraid to have fun. Yeah. Everybody was afraid to enjoy what they were doing. And I think it it's literally sucked the color out of the core and out of um, a lot of the other services. Uh, and and I think that was uh, a big a big turning point. It it made it drudgery. It made it a job. It it made everybody paranoid about things. That's a difficulty. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's it's hard to talk to people about and I think it's an important part about leadership and leadership culture is 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 describing as some sort of ethos. And of course a warrior ethos is what the Marine Corps is all about. You talk to somebody about that, and, and and they don't quite understand what you mean by that. And um, there is something to be said about, as you say, the, the, the PC police coming around. And, and this goes for organizations, too. There's something to be said about quit taking yourself so seriously. And if you can you know, get down in the weeds and make fun of each other, I mean, you think about that. I mean, it, the Marine Corps – in, in a squadron, in a squadron, what you, what I was in, I mean, it was a brutal place to be. If you were, mm-hmm. if you were easily offended, you did not survive. And everybody no. think everybody thinks. And, well, and how, the key, go ahead. The, the key is, quite frankly, that that you have to have leadership that is willing uh, to a encourage that and b protect the people who are who are doing it. Now, I'm not talking here about. Uh, uh, sexual harassment, yeah, right. and, and and criminal activity or anything like that. No, no, exactly. But there's a certain morale factor uh, that you've got to protect. That's right. And that requires that requires you to reflect back on another leadership principle, which is courage. Yep, moral courage, particularly. You know, yep. I I agree. With you. I think one of the the things that's really lacking, and it struck me, and we were talking before we started recording that, you know, I didn't realize how much I learned about leadership until I was away from it. And mm-hmm. it really struck me that um, what I call or what I see lacking, in, especially in the corporate arena, is this lack of courageous authenticity. And that's kind of what you're talking yeah. about there, You know, having the courage to be genuinely authentic, to be vulnerable at the same time, but also not to have, um, you know, not to get your sh- shorts in a, in a bunch just because of, of, of the PC stuff. Because that stuff yeah. it really does, you know, dry, and that's and that's what I see in in the organizations that I've worked for. There's no sense of unity. There's no sense of purpose. There's no sense of of mission or value, and that's what organizations are lacking. This sense. Well, you of, have to ask yourself why. Well, yeah. I mean, I. I and do do you want the answer? Yes, I do. I want your answer. Yes. <laughs> the the answer is quite simply because. We have become selfish. Yeah, we've become self-centered. There is there is a lack of thinking about the good of the organization. In other words, there is a a vein of self over mission. Yeah, that has that has permeated not only the military but has permeated um, industry. I see it all the time with the, the people I deal with. When when I said uh, when I set up uh, warriors, I said, "Look, uh, I'm I'm not a businessman. I don't, you know, I'm not an MBA from Wharton. I don't get it. Uh, I'm a Mustang Marine, and this outfit is going to be run like a rifle company. 
and you folks who work for me um, are going to have fitness reports, and should you screw up and piss me off, there will be no zero sum. I understand mistakes, and I understand that mistakes are, are, um, are how we learn, but when you make a mistake, I'm going to have your ass vibrating at the position of attention in front of my desk, and um, we're going to discuss this. Uh, and the kids love it. I mean, yeah. that's exactly how it's run. Hell, the IRS still can't figure out how come I refuse to have a CEO or a CFO in my outfit, and I have a commanding officer and an executive officer and an adjutant. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> that's hilarious. I love it. I, I love that. That's awesome. You know, I was always wondering, too, you know, and then, of course, another watershed moment in movie filmmaking was Saving Private Ryan. Now, were you were deeply involved with that, with training, you know, kind of putting the actors through a kind of a, a quasi boot camp, if you will. Is that correct? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It's that's become that's become the Captain Die Warriors Inc. method. Yeah. Uh, before before I do anything, I train the actors, and the reason I do is because it's not so much their technical abilities. Uh, now I can teach, you know. Uh, a 14-year-old to load and fire a weapon uh, realistically and how to wear his gear and how to walk and talk. What concerns me is the mentality, the heart, the psychology of combat people and how we are and who we are and what we think and how we relate to each other. And in order to have any idea about that, you've got to experience it. It's not something you can teach and talk about, especially when the people you're teaching are talking to have have no relationship to anything like that. Which, how much you know? I'm curious about you know what did um, Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks did they? And Tom Hanks seems like a guy that he really appreciates what that generation went through, what that you know, um, what the the common soldier had to go through. Did they admit to you that they learned a lot from from going through that process? Oh, absolutely. I'm looking at a picture signed by Stephen right here on my wall. It's the two of us sitting on the beach uh, for Saving Private Ryan, and it says, uh, uh, Dale, when I was young, I thought I'd never want to go to war, and then I met you. <laughs> Thanks for making it real, Steven Spielberg. That's so awesome. um, it's they they understood what I was telling them initially, which is, Look, I can get all the details right for you. I can get the uniforms right. I can teach people how to get out of Higgins' boats and hit the beach and um, and do combat reloads and crawl on their belly like a reptile. And But it's really how they react with each other, how they relate to each other that's going to make this thing sing, that's going to make it real. And so I said, look... Um, that kind of thing, the business of the mission being more important than the individual, that's antithesis to an actor. An actor grows up thinking that the sun rises and sets on his ass, and <laughs> and how's my hair, and how many lines have I got? Right. It's it's all about him, 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 or her, her, her. And so, uh, what what I wanted to do was was teach them that in the military, people come second. The mission comes first. Right. People run a close second, but it's always the mission. There's always something out there that's more important and more vital than you are. And in order to teach an actor that, 
You've got to put him in that position so that he understands it as a, a tangible lesson in survival. How, how do you feel about being, um, I think it's great, but how do you, you know, am I looking at your list? You're always typecast for that guy. And there's a reason for that, obviously. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I, I've got to be the most typecast guy in Hollywood. I was going to no say. Question. I think I've played, I've played everything from a senior sergeant to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. I guess all that's left is God. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I feel good about it. I mean, a lot of actors would say, well, look, you know, I'm tired of this. I want to stretch and I want to find that interesting homosexual hairdresser part. But, <laughs> you know, it's, I don't, I think it's an honor. Um, and I look at it as an opportunity to just one more time give audiences a look at what a real military guy does, how he acts, how he thinks, how he talks, how he relates. So, you know, it doesn't bother me. I'm I'm just delighted to have the opportunity. Yeah, you know, I'm always fascinated, um, and my wife early on, I remember when I saw Saving Private Ryan and I would watch it, and I've always been fascinated by um, and she asked me, why, why do you want to see those? Uh, those are so upsetting. And what always fascinates me about those stories is not so much, you know, the being a little boy playing soldier type thing. It's mm-hmm. what, what always fascinates me about it is, is that it's just the, the, it exposes human beings at the extremes. And, and that's where you get to see the real quality leadership, you know, the good and the bad. And that people actually survived through that and carried on and became, you know, productive human beings after seeing all that, especially the World War Two. I mean, everybody. I mean, I'm not just trying to exclude it. I mean, all combat is 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 dangerous and bad and scary and traumatic. But especially, you know, I became friends with a, and I just I recorded his conversation and posted it a couple of days ago. But he's 86. He was a Iwo Jima Marine. You know, lied when he was. 15 to try to join the Marine Corps. They turned him away. He turned 16. He finally got in. And, you know, and he was 16 and he was on Guadalcanal. And then 17, he was on Taro. And then, you know, right when he turned 18, he, he was on Iwo Jima and got shot on the 19th day. And for all practical counts, he shouldn't be here, you know. And just those stories are just amazing to me. And they're just average, everyday guys. And that, you know, it was common sense leadership that got him through all that kind of crap, you know. And, yeah. Um, yeah. And, um, that's why I love, and that's why I appreciate, you know, the work that you've that you've done and make and bringing that authentic realism. I know it's Hollywood and everything else, and it doesn't even come close to the real real thing. You can never, but it's. I mean, it struck. It's, I don't know. I mean, it, it movies will never be the same because of of what you've done and and helped out in, and and I think that's a good thing. You know, the more authentic. Well, that's my compliment. So, uh, yeah, listen, I'm I'm. Uh... I'm extraordinarily taken by those World War II guys. Uh, obviously, I spent a lot of time with them uh, and the Korea guys. Uh, and it's the reason is uh, because I'm I'm so taken by how they survived all that and got through it and got on with their lives. Listen, one of the scariest things I've ever done is occasionally I get asked to come down and talk to. Uh, these uh, what they call transition assistance programs right. uh, where uh, they want me to come down and talk to uh, young men and women getting out of the service uh, and you know tell them that you too can get out there and succeed as I did and 
and I listen to the people who come on before me and, and, and what they're talking about with these youngsters, and it scares the hell out of me. Like what, they're what? convincing, well, they're convincing these young men and women that they must, somehow, there must be something uh, terrible and traumatic about service in the military hmm. or, or service in, um, you know, overseas on deployment, either Iraq or Afghanistan these days, and that they must be damaged, even if they don't think they are. Surely they must be, because this is such a traumatic experience, and I think that's the biggest pile of steaming horse crap I've ever heard. Yeah. Sure, PTSD is, I, I dealt with it for 10 years. I know that it's real. But it's not an insurmountable thing, and I'm afraid what we're doing is raising a generation of people, uh, a generation of veterans, um, who think it's all about entitlement. Uh, it's all about, I served my country, so give me something. You know, that's interesting that you bring that up. I, I heard... And that's just nonsense. Yeah. You don't even... They didn't, they didn't volunteer to serve for that reason. Right. Well, you know, and, and this going back to my friend Jim Goodrich, and um, you know, and talking to his wife, you know, and for years, and and you, you see the guy, and he's just the most genuine, nicest guy, and he sure. has seen the the worst thing that humanity yeah. can throw at you, and he chose, and this is what I love about him, and I asked him when he was in the hospital, it was a year ago this week, and I, he was in the hospital, and I went and visited him, and. And I've heard these stories 25, 30 times, and I, I always love hearing them. And he, sometimes he tells me the same thing, but I don't care. I just love hearing them. And, mm -hmm. and I said, how did all that define you? And I've said this on a couple of the podcasts. He said, it didn't so much define me, Rich. He says, it refined me. Yeah. He said, I never really realized what it meant to me, what it meant to love another human being until I was in combat with another Marine. And that struck me. I didn't. I wasn't expecting that. And his wife was sitting there, and his wife was kind of nodding. She was starting to cry. And he says, "It's true. He 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 was the most loving man, the most loving husband, the most loving father, because of that experience." And now, certainly, someone could become a great loving man, husband, father, and all that without going through a trauma. But mm -hmm. look what he did. I mean, he chose, and 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 what a legacy he's left behind. And so I get what sure. you're saying that you don't, you know. He didn't have a support group. He didn't have – and I'm not trying to take anything away from the people that are suffering from PTSD, but I I, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, I, I remember asking uh, – I was sitting uh, with uh, um, Steven Spielberg and a bunch of people um, in a pub in Ireland uh, when we were shooting the beach sequences of uh, Saving Private Ryan. And we'd had a few Guinness and uh, – and I think it was Tom Hanks said, uh, hey, you know, you, you've been in a lot of war. You spent three years in Southeast Asia and a year in the Middle East. And uh, uh, what, what's, if you had to say one thing, what, what is it you learned? And, you know, I've, I stared at the foam on my Guinness for a while, and then I said, well, the truth is I learned what love is. Yeah. And it just, it, you know, you could have heard a pin drop. Yeah. Nobody... <laughs> Nobody expected that, but I. But the kind of the love I'm talking about is exactly what your buddy was talking about. Yep. Uh, yep. I learned what it really means. You know, it what, means self-sacrifice. It means right. selflessness. You know. You know, in that that scene from well, it's even from the book from um, 
Sledge's book with the old breed, and then they they did a pretty mm-hmm. good, they did a pretty good job in um, in the Pacific on it when um, oh I forget when Sledge is uh, I forget what they called the company commander. Um, you're talking about uh, Akak Haldane. Yeah, when Akak yeah. died. Right. What a powerful scene! My God. Sure. And then the yeah. book is even you reading in the book, it's even more gripping. But my God, yeah. and yeah. and knowing that. And look at Sledge's life. I mean, look what he did. I mean, the same thing. Or, yeah. in, in, or reading the story about the the guys raising the the corpsman raising on the from flags of our fathers, and mm-hmm. how he never talked about it. And his son didn't even know he had a Navy Cross. You know, I mean, it's yeah. just crazy. Yeah, I don't know. That's why I get passionate about leadership and talking about and, and learning from these guys because I always wonder: Do I have the character and the courage to do what they did? And sure, industry industry could take a lot from them and. And if if we put the current generation of young men and women who are who are coming away from military service and coming away from service on extended deployments and combat zones, if if we will open the corporate structure to them and say, look, not do this or do that, but bring this and bring that, bring your experience, bring your leadership, bring your judgment, bring that. That character that's that has been forged in fire, bring that to us, and and we'll learn how to deal with you. We'll we'll change uh, so that so that those great leadership traits and characteristics uh, infuse our industry. And I hope that happens. In, American industry would be very smart if they if they make it happen, if they let it happen. Yeah, I think there's a there's a faulty perception out there that they think, oh, and just like you said, you you run your your Warriors Inc. like a rifle platoon, and everybody thinks, oh, you know. But I tell you, it, it, the perception is, oh, you're just a mind numb robot. But it's actually the ex- <laughs> it's a it's the exact opposite. I've never worked in an organization that allowed me more creativity, more opportunity to challenge authority than the Marine Corps. In yep, fact, in my, in fact, my biggest ass chewing that I got were from a one-star general is because I did not speak up in a staff meeting because I was a captain. I was filling a major's billet and I withheld information that I, like, well, I just assumed. And he found out about it later and he, and he wasn't so much of the ass chewing. It was like the, the disappointed father speech, which, which is even more painful. Right. And then he said, you know, how dare you not share that information with me, Captain? And he said, you are obligated as an officer in this Marine Corps to tell me everything, even if you disagree with me. And I'll never forget that. And what? A, and if more people did that, wow, sure. you know, the creativity yeah. just gets unleashed. If you are working in an environment where you can, um, you know, it's not your right to challenge, it's your obligation. If that, it permeates. And that's what I really loved about the Marine Corps. Well, listen, I, I talk to industry leaders about this sort of thing and, um, and you know, tell them the same stories I've been telling you. And they say, well, you know, uh, business, the business of business is business. And uh, uh, we're, we're always concerned with the bottom line. And I say, just stop. Yeah. What you don't get, the disconnect, is that in order for you to have a good, healthy, and growing bottom line, you have got to have a good, healthy, and growing organization. And that's where you're screwing the pooch. Yep. And so, and you know, and that seems to hit them like a brick between the running lamps. You know, they, oh, you mean, uh, yes, that's exactly what I mean. It's all about people. You're exactly right. I was in a debate one time at a corp- corporation I worked for, 
and we didn't pay our property managers a lot of money to run this hotel. And the CEO at the time believed that, well, you're never going to get a quality individual because you're only paying them 20 some thousand dollars a year. Yeah. And I said, I totally disagree. I said, if you instead looked at that person who's making $23,000 a year and running a property and make them feel like they're part of something special, part of something larger than themselves, and you show them that the opportunities and, and make them feel like they're, they're one of the most important you know, part of this organization, which they are, people will go to the ends of the earth for you if they feel like they're part of something bigger than themselves. And then I threw, I, right. and I threw the right. example of the Marine Corps. I said, do you think anybody joins the Marine Corps to make a lot of money? And I said, Those, and you've got 18, 19, 20-year-old young men and women out there that you know, are doing extraordinary things that would just blow businesses away. They're making decisions that literally can affect national security. Yeah, absolutely. My my wife just just wrote a book uh, last year called Backbone: um, Leadership Techniques and Legends of um, Marine Corps Non Commissioned Officers. And it's been it's been going great, guns. And I've been giving it to every conceivable guy that wants to talk to me about veterans and business and so on and so forth. It's it's a series of interviews with young men and women um, who, and, and, and in some cases it has historical uh, references, but it's, it's young men and women who, just as you say, you know, are handling millions of dollars worth of equipment, uh, got 8, 12, 15 lives on their hands, uh, and, and how they feel and how they think and how they live. And, uh, and and how they make their judgments. And it's it's gold for corporate America. Yeah, I agree with you. Backbone's a book? That's what it's called? Backbone, right. Yeah. Check it out. By Julia Dye, Ph.D. Julia Dye. Well, guys, Dale, this is so much fun. It's so natural to talk to another Marine, and um, I'm a big fan of yours. And Well, thank you, Rich. And you're an author too. I should point that out. We haven't talked about any of your 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 fiction writer as well. And um... yeah, I you know when when I started Warriors Incorporated, um, it quickly became obvious to me that, that despite all our success and all four Academy Awards and thirteen Emmys and so on and so forth, uh, that you know there there weren't enough war movies out there to keep everybody at work all the time. You know they come and they go. They're occasional things. Right. And so I began to expand uh, Warriors, and we began to do themed entertainment. Uh, we trained all of the uh, performers in the Las Vegas uh, Hilton uh, Star Trek show. Uh, we began to do music videos. We did uh, a music video for Green Day. Wow. Uh, we began doing um, radio and and uh, and uh, video games. We were consulting on oh, yeah, those. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, eventually, and this leads me back to the authoring, I had, I had been an author. I think I had about four or five novels uh, published. But I said, you know, there's a lot of stories out there that veterans tell that are really great books, but they can't get published because there isn't somebody, a publisher who really appreciates the stories and understands where the audience is. And so... Uh, my wife and I created a subsidiary of Warriors Incorporated called Warriors Publishing Group. And that's been going great guns. It's been up for about three years now. We have something like 14 titles out. Um, and they include my books. Um, I, I'm, 
I'm now writing a, a what we call the file series, which has a grand old retired Marine character who keeps getting recalled to solve various worldwide problems. <laughs> And uh, they're called the file series. The first one was Laos file, and there's Peleliu file and Chosen file. Yeah. And then I'll probably do a fourth one uh, either this year or next year. So how do people find you? Warriors Inc. is dot uh, com. Is that uh... Warriors Inc. dot com? Yeah, that'll get to me. And uh, that links to the books as well, right? Yeah, yeah. That links to Warriors Publishing and um, gives background on. What we do and what I'm up to, I'm, I've just written and I'm about to direct a new World War II movie. Uh, we'll start this summer, and uh, that'll be my feature directing debut. Awesome. What's it, what's it about? It's called No Better Place to Die, and it's the story of the 82nd Airborne's uh, fight for uh, a critical bridge over uh, the murder at River in Normandy on D-Day to D-plus-3. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I'll have to look forward to that. Well, and when the movie comes out, we'll have to bring you back on the show and talk about that. Sure, be glad to. Guys, Dale, thank you so much. It's been so much fun talking to you today. Okay, Rich. I hope it works out, and I hope uh, your audience enjoys it. Semper Fi, man. Semper Fi. Richard invites you to become a part of the Dose of Leadership community. Visit doseofleadership.com and sign up to receive his free Common Sense Leadership ebook, a guide that highlights how all of us can learn to become calm, confident, consistent, and courageous in all aspects of our lives. Richard is also available as a speaker for your next event. Richard specializes in practical leadership and change management. He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com. 